0: This morning we wrap up our series on 1 Peter, and um, I don't know about you, but I love walking through entire books of the Bible because of the way that those particular books tend to shape our life and tend to mark us. I don't know what um, the pages of 1 Peter look like in your Bible, but mine are pretty worn out. Um, I got a new Bible, the first of the year, and if I was to take and go back to the first Bible that I used in Colossians, there were all kinds of sweaty finger marks in Colossians because I was so nervous when I was speaking. There's still sweaty marks every once in a while. The fact of the matter is, is that these books that we've walked through tend to mark us and to shape us. For instance, how many of you were here when we walked through the book of Colossians? Let me see your hands, okay? How about the book of Romans? Let me see your hands, okay? Book of Lamentations, see your hands? Okay, good. Book of Hezekiah? There is no book of Hezekiah, just so you know. Just just testing you to see if you were like, just putting your hand up. Like, hey, we're here, we're here, we're here. All right, all right. So there's something special about this. Walking expositionally through the scriptures is helpful, and here's why. Because the point of the sermon needs to be the point of the text. Authority of the Word is one of our core values, and what that means is, is that the ability for you to change your life relates not necessarily to a memorable illustration, as, as helpful as those may be, but it relates to the connection between what we think and what we talk about on Sundays and what is actually communicated in the Scriptures. So walking through a book expositionally helps as does walking through other particular subject matters even when we're not walking through a particular book we're still walking expositionally through the scriptures in fact next week we'll start a new series called come to jesus and that series is not walking through a specific book but what it's walking through instead is the gospels trying to determine what were the ways in which jesus shared the gospel with people from all kinds of walks of life so how did he share the gospel with a woman with a past How did he share the gospel with a man who was a religious skeptic? How did he uh, share the gospel with those who were sort of rich and famous and powerful? What we're going to do is, over the summer, see how Jesus shares the gospel, both with compassion, that's very important, but also conviction. Like, with clarity and with an uncompromising commitment to help people see the reality of the gospel message. Part of that strategy is the summer to help you think about what it means to neighbor well, to neighbor with the gospel, and what is the art of gospel neighboring. We want to give you some ways to be able to do that and realize that this is the summer months when people are outside and other activities that are going on create some great opportunities for gospel conversations and hope you'll embrace those and even use this summer to that end. So today we're going to wrap up First Peter, in September of last year, we began our journey through this book and I hope that your mind, like mine, has been so shaped in terms of my understanding of the word exile by this book. It's remarkable. We set out on this journey to study the book of First Peter for a number of reasons. Let me just remind you what they were. There were actually six of them that I shared back in September. The first was this, we studied 1 Peter so that you would see the shifting culture as an opportunity to be embraced rather than a trend to be feared. Part of the impetus for this is that I heard from many believers just a fear about what was happening in the culture, and rather than seeing that as an opportunity, many people sort of wanted to retreat. I hope that 1 Peter has given you a different posture, that you can look at the world and go, I know what's happening, this is exactly what... We learned about in First Peter. Secondly, to remind you who you really are and what your calling is about, because it's easy to forget. The uncoupling of Christianity from American culture has set some of us in a great deal of given us a great deal of discomfort. And I hope that you've been able to see that even if or when that happens, there's great hope and there's a game plan in First Peter. Number three, the point of this book is to remind you who but rather that you would not be surprised, to remind you not to be surprised when you experience the weirdness of Christianity. There's gonna come a time when you share something and it comes out of your mouth and you're just gonna think, man, that sounds weird, and it is. Now, I'm not encouraging you to be weird, but I'm encouraging the message that you share is going to be weird. And for you to understand, yes, I believe that the Son of God came to earth, I believe that he died, and that God takes his death and applies it to me. Number four, the goal of 1 Peter has been to drive you back to the Bible so you can see how relevant it is for your life, that you would see what Peter is talking about in this book and realize how specifically it applies in so many areas so that it'll increase your confidence and begin to think about, my goodness, what does 2 Peter say? And what about 1 John? And what about the Gospel of John to to drive you in terms of your love and Vigor to study the Bible. Number five, so that you will see and appreciate the uniqueness of what your church experience means every Sunday. We'll, we'll talk about this very specifically, but what does it mean that we're gathered together and what should even this Sunday look like in terms of its role in your life and in your week in light of the culture that we've all been a part of? And number six, the purpose of this book and this series has been to help mobilize you towards godliness. Godliness. Rather than just simply retreating and sort of digging a moat around your house, putting a drawbridge in and keeping people away, this, this book sends us out into the world, but to live in a very different way. So those are the reasons why we walk through 1 Peter. Hopefully you've seen your mind and your heart shaped by this wonderful book. Today we come to verses 12 through 14. The final three verses that we're going to study, and they serve as an excellent summary for really the entire letter. And what we're going to do as Peter draws this book to a close is see what he says in those verses as a fitting end to both this book and a fitting end to the series. As then we're going to look back and rehearse some things that we've talked about over the last year. To see the way in which this book has served us so incredibly well. So we're going to start in verses 12 to 14 and then use that as a lens to sort of look back at the rest of the book. So we'll be all over First Peter this morning. Here's my summary statement of what I think First Peter is all about. Essentially, it's a book written to an exile community standing firm in God's grace. So if Peter... Could deliver this letter to us, it would simply be his charge, College Park Church, as an exile community. That's who you are. Stand firm in God's grace. So I want to use that statement, I want to pull it apart, get it four ways. What does it mean to be an exile? What does it mean to be a community? What does it mean to stand firm? And what does it mean for God's grace to be so amazing? Let's see what we can do with this statement, first, exile. My guess is that you hear that word differently now, having been in First Peter, I hope that you will. The word exile, in short, is the identity of a follower of Jesus. These exiles are exiles because of who they are in Christ, and essentially, that relates to their identity. Look at how he ends the letter, 1 Peter 5, 14. Greet one another with the kiss of love, and then he says this, peace to all you who are in Christ. Now hopefully you don't just kind of blow through that statement as if, oh, he's just saying goodbye. No, what Peter is doing is he's anchoring the book at the end in the same way that he began. Go to chapter 1 and verse 1. We see here this phrase, in Christ. That is the identity of who they are, And it's the way that Peter began when he says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So you need to know that from beginning to end, one of Peter's aims is to help believers understand who they really are, to give them this identity. Now throughout the New Testament, the main way that this identity language shows up is in that phrase, in Christ. And this idea of being in Christ, union with Christ, is foundational to what it means to be a Christian. When you become a follower of Jesus, you are put in Christ. When someone is baptized, it's a picture of them being in Christ. And this is the essence of what Christianity is all about. It relates to forgiveness. That God has applied the righteousness of Christ to those who believe in him. And when that happens, when he grants you forgiveness, you are placed in Christ. Because of Christ, you have forgiveness. But it even extends beyond that. Lest you think that in Christ just means salvation, it means even more. It means freedom. According to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, to be in Christ means that you actually have now a freedom from the power of sin and death because of Christ. That means that you don't have to do what you used to do. One of the lies the enemies told you some this week is this, you have to do this. This is who you are. You're a sinner. You have to sin. You have to do this. You have to say this. You have to look at that. You have to feel like that. And the reality is the Bible comes in and says, no, you don't. Your whole identity has changed. You're a new person. Does it mean you're not going to struggle or be tempted? Of course not. Doesn't mean you're not gonna fall into sin. Of course, there'll be moments of failure. But the fact of the matter is, is your identity has fundamentally changed. You are now in Christ. It also relates, third, to this idea of eternal life, meaning that God promises eternal life to those who are in Christ. It relates to assurance, because nothing can separate us from the love of God who are in Christ, according to Romans chapter eight. And it also means that because of the fact that we're in Christ, that there is a unity that we all share Because of our commonality of being united to Christ. So more than our ethnicity, more than our backgrounds, more than anything that could possibly divide us, the the, the center, the local point of what the church is, the central locus of the church is what it means to be in Christ. The effect is that we then have this new identity. The gospel creates a whole new you. Paul put it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Peter then says to these Gentile believers spread all, of moder- all over modern-day Turkey, look, you are exiles. He's placing over them, not just a name. No, he's placing over them a new identity. And then look at chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. This identity then relates to where their inheritance is. He reminds them That not only have they been born again in verse 3, but verse 4, they have been born again to this living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded for faith, for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So this identity has shaped not just who they are, but also what they hope in. And then look at chapter 2 and verse 5. It means that then they are a spiritual house. He says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood. And all of this is through Jesus Christ. And then if I had to choose one verse or one section that relates so significantly to the issue of identity, it's verses nine to 10 of chapter two. Notice the, the identity language, but you are a chosen race. That's a a class of people. You're a royal priesthood. That's a class of people. You're a holy nation. That's a class of people. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Notice the linkage there between these categorical, unique groups of people and this exile and sojourner language. So all of this is really, really important. To be in Christ means not only that a person's sins are forgiven, but... It not only means they know where they're going to go when they die. But it also means to be a follower of Jesus that your entire identity is changed. Meaning this, that you love things you would have never loved prior to meeting Jesus. You you sing things that you would never sing. You, You love things. You read things in the Bible. You're like, I love that. And before Christ, you would have hated that. It means that a follower of Jesus has been born again, that something so fundamentally, something supernatural, something miraculous has happened inside of them that they long for things they would have never longed for and everything about them has fundamentally been changed. And what you need to know is that it's not just an internal or motivational issue. This relates to even how one interacts with the world. This identity and union with Christ then becomes the the basis by which believers respond to authority. They understand the gospel. And when you begin to think, why should I listen to you? And that begins to surface in your heart, immediately the new identity kicks in and you realize, why should God even listen to you? Before you start applying that to some other thing in life, you need to apply the gospel to your soul. When you experience mistreatment and you think, "Who do they think they are that they could say that about me?" The gospel comes in and says, "Who do you think you are?" And it's a good it's a leveling not only in terms of the beauty of God's grace but also how we respond to the things that happen to us outside of our own identity. Slander? Their own sinfulness? All of these things are then affected by this fundamental change of identity. So I hope that this book has helped you understand the beauty of the gospel in your life and that you understand this this categorical definition of what it means to be in exile. You could go to your place of work and if people not understand you and not even like what you believe, and you can go home knowing, I don't like that they don't like what I believe, but it's okay because at the end of the day, I don't stand before them, I stand before Jesus. You can experience hardship or things that people say about you, and you could say, I wish they wouldn't say that, but at the end of the day, I'm going to entrust myself to the one who judges justly. And why do you believe in that? Because you believe in the gospel. So it's not that you leave the gospel behind, it's that you bring it along with you, and because of your identity, it means that everything about you has been shaped by the beauty of what it means to be in Christ. You may be here today and not yet a follower of Jesus. And can I just tell you, friend, you have to answer two fundamental questions, and it's this. Number one, what happens when you die? And number two, what do you do with all the things you've done wrong? And somewhere in your heart of hearts, you know that there's a problem with those two things, and you gotta answer those questions. All of us have to. Christianity answers that, that there's a place of heaven, there's a place of hell, and the only thing that takes care of our sins is the work of Christ. The Bible answers that question. The question is, what is your answer? To be in Christ means that your sins are forgiven. God looks at your account and your record has been completely cleansed by the blood of Christ for those who put their trust in him. To be in Christ means that your sins are forgiven. It means that your identity has been fundamentally altered and it means that everything you are is completely encapsulated in who Jesus is. That's what it means to be in Christ. And when Peter writes to these believers, he wanted to remind them that they are people whose identity has been fundamentally changed. Here's the second thing. They're an exile community. So it's not just that they have fundamentally been changed in terms of their identity, but this is something that they do together. This is something that I think warrants a lot more thinking on our part. This refers to not just individuals, how they think about themselves, but this relates to how do you think about the people who are a part of the church one of the reasons that we want you to become a member of the church and the reason we want you to, to linger afterwards and to connect with one another is because to have a church just be a place that you go to instead of a place that you belong, it doesn't make sense biblically and it's not a safe place to be culturally. You need a place that you can sort of run to on a regular basis, a weekly gathering where you're reminded of what you believe and reminded who believes it along with you. And in that respect, you need a, a brotherhood or a community who helps you believing. Hopefully, even this morning, you've experienced that, where you're singing a song, and maybe your heart's thinking about something else, and then someone next to you, is, they're, they're singing so well, or perhaps so poorly, but so energetically, and, and their hand goes up, or they're into it, and suddenly you're reminded, no, this is truth I need to remember, and someone has helped you today in your singing. Or maybe you come this morning with a weary mind and heart, and perhaps this message would help come just reset your mind and heart. And over weeks and weeks and months and months, you begin to build a framework and a fabric of thinking that reflects the beauty of what it means to be an exile. In order to do that, you need brothers and sisters to help you. So in this text, verse 12, he says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Silvanus was a co-laborer with Paul and also with Peter. He Took the letter, apparently, to these churches, probably functioned as a bit of its interpreter if they had questions as to what Peter meant. Silvanus was probably the one who answered them. Silvanus is the Latin name for the name Silas. Silas was a respected leader in the Jerusalem church. He, he took the Jerusalem Council, a pretty weighty decision regarding the use of the law, and he brought it to the church at Antioch. So he was a, a trusted brother. He actually joined the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. He was the one who was imprisoned with Paul in Philippi when the Philippian jailer was converted. So Silas has a really important role in both Peter and Paul's ministry. Then he also mentions Mark, verse 13. She who is at Babylon... That probably refers to the church at Rome. Peter was likely writing the book from Rome. He uses Babylon to capture the idea of a system or a government, a system that's sort of anti-God. So in some respects, he's reminding them that there's a church that exists at Rome as well, lest they think that it's all about their own little experience. But then he says, and so does Mark, my son. This is a man also referred to as John Mark. Interestingly enough, the early church met in the home of Mark's mother, according to Acts chapter 12. This was the brother who abandoned Paul for some reason in the middle of one of his missionary journey, and so much was the pain with Paul, and so much was the frustration, probably understandably so, that when Barnabas suggested that John Mark go along with them, Paul disagreed, and so he and Paul, Barnabas and Paul then split, going separate ways. Barnabas took Mark, traveled to Cyprus, Paul took Silas. It appears that John Mark at some point becomes back in good favor with the Apostle Paul. He serves along with Timothy in Asia Minor and had a close relationship with Peter, it's clear, and likely John Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark, greatly informed probably by Peter's account of the life of Christ. And what's the point of all of this? The point is this, that it's clear throughout the New Testament that there is A band of brothers who serve together and help one another through trials. The community is important. So here's what you need to know. Brother or sister, you need a couple friends in your life who are the kind of people that you can pick up at a moment's notice and say, man, I don't know what to do about this. Or I'm really, really mad right now. Can you help me process something? The question is, do you have those brothers? Who are the folks that you could pick up, or the sisters, who you could pick up and say, look, I need to talk to you. Would you mind clearing your schedule? I've got an issue. Do you have anyone in your life like that? And I'm not just suggesting this because you shouldn't be lonely. I'm suggesting to it, I'm suggesting this because it's dangerous. To try and be an exile while being solo is a really bad and dangerous idea. You need brothers and sisters who can come alongside you and help you to be able to encourage you and to be faithful all the way to the end. If you're not connected to a group of friends and this is just a gathering that you come to on a weekly basis, but no one knows knows you here, can I just exhort you and encourage you? That that, that needs to be solved and solved quickly. Not just for the sake of your own soul in terms of your spiritual growth, but because you're going to run into things. And if you're just flying solo and have no one who can speak into your life or no one who can call you on an improper attitude start talking about your boss, and you've got a chip on your shoulder, someone who, someone who could say, hey, what, what about that normative willing obedience thing from First Peter? How's that going? You need someone in your life on a regular basis that you want to look at and say, why don't you just be quiet? Why don't you get in my stuff? Get in my grill. Trying to be a solo Christian is not only not helpful, but it's frankly dangerous for your long-term perseverance. You need a community around you so that you can be a good exile. I was telling someone this weekend what a joy it has been over the last eight, now nine years, to raise a family in this context, to have. Particular men who've poured into my sons and their lives have been shaped by the men of this church to be able to be on a regular basis with elders on a Monday night and to to be with guys who are godly and want to follow after Jesus. Like, giving up that time, those lay elders being a part of our ministry team, no doubt is costly at one level, but it also is exhorting in the fact that you get to labor together and strive together to try and follow Jesus. Even this morning... I trust that you know that part of your aim in being here is not just to come and receive, but also for you to be able to experience and express what it means to be the body of Christ. That's why, by the way, he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. So we, we thought we'd find a way to practice that this morning. So here's what I want you to do. Look at, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Some of you, we're good. He's not serious, is he? That's way too specific of that text. What essentially it means is a sort of Middle Eastern greeting. It's the same thing that we would do in terms of how we welcome one another and encourage one another. I just want to remind you and exhort you that when we end the service today, that's when your ministry opportunity really begins, to exhort one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, to create, if you will, a, a church culture where people want to come into a sanctuary to find safety and refuge. As a result, Peter's told us quite a bit about what the church should be like. Let me just list a few of them. Chapter 1 and verse 22, he says that we should love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, put away malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. The idea is that's the stuff that's out there. Let's not let that stuff be in here. Unity of mind, chapter 3 and verse 8, sympathy, brotherly love. A tender heart, a humble mind. That's what's supposed to make the church a unique place. Verse 9, keep loving one another, showing hospitality. Don't grumble when you see someone coming up to you in the hallway. Oh, here we go again. Use your gifts. Chapter 4 and verse 9. Elders, brothers, we're commanded to shepherd the flock and to do it for the right reasons. In chapter 5 and verse 5, we're to be clothed with humility. The idea is that the church is like this oasis Well, the world is sort of falling apart, all kinds of rancor and, and all sorts of evil and sinful things that are happening. That There's this, this group of people who have gathered together, not to run away from the world, but to help one another so they can go back out in the world for six days and then come back again and be reminded what's true, what they believe, and then go back out in the world and they do this. They gather and scatter and gather and scatter and do this for the sake of... For the sake of the glory of God and for the advancement of the kingdom. An exile community. Third, a group of people that are standing firm. Verse 12 says, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. The, the, the arrangement of the language here means that you are to be who you are. In other words, God's empowered you to stand. So stand in a way that reflects his empowerment. The idea is this, live out your calling. Or as we've said before, keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. So 1 Peter is a book that's written in order to help remind us that there's a danger of falling into unbelief, even if it's temporary unbelief, or shrinking back from what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This this book consistently calls believers to live out their Christian life, especially when it proves costly. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6 is the first time that we saw this, just to remind you, Peter says this, in this you rejoice, this is six. though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the tone of First Peter is to expect trials and that trials will come and that we ought to stand firm in them. But how do we stand firm? Verse 13, we prepare our minds for action. We're sober-minded. We set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that we stand firm is we are not conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. So one of the ways that we stand firm is to stand firm in our commitment to godliness. And then in chapter two, verses 13 Through chapter three and verse six, we saw the word submission. The word submission means normative willing obedience. And it means as it relates to the government, as it relates to your employer, as it relates wives to obedient husbands, disobedient husbands, rather, that your normative posture is willing obedience, that your first answer to the government is yes, we will obey you. Unless this clearly violates scripture, we will be model citizens. You won't have to worry about us. Our identity doesn't foment anarchy or rebellion. Instead, it creates submissiveness and a willingness to follow your direction, even though you are a man-made institution. It wipes the chip off your shoulder as it relates to organized human organizations or entities It relates to your employer that your name on the employment list means, oh, this guy or this woman is committed to helping and being a part of the team as opposed to sort of going their own way with a chip on their shoulder because somehow they're not part of us. And as it relates to wives with a disobedient husband, it means that, wives, one of the ways that you express your exile is when your husband doesn't follow Christ, or if he's not a believer, you willingly follow his lead in order so that the Holy Spirit can apply pressure to his life and make him aware of the difference between you and him. It means that standing firm expresses itself with a certain way of thinking. Chapter four, verse one, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. It means that we should not be surprised at trials. Chapter four, verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as if though something strange were happening to you. Hopefully now that you you just see the world differently and realize, man, things are gonna come, and I'm I don't want them to come, but I'm ready because that's just a part of what it means to live in the world. And it also means that you know that you're entering a world where there's a roaring lion who prowls around. Last week we talked about, you know, submit, got to resist the proud. Here last week those kids that helped us, this devil is walking, prowls around like a roaring lion. And that's That's the optics that we need to realize. We're walking on into the world and the devil is looking to destroy you. He hates you. So 1 Peter is a strong book with a number of exhortations and the idea is not that those who follow Jesus somehow cower in the corner as if they retreat and cut themselves off from the world and its problems. On the contrary, what it means is this, that you are so shaped by the gospel, you understand what your identity is, you're so connected to a body of believers who can help fill your soul with boldness that you go out into the world and rather than having your standing firm look like arrogance or anarchy or acrimony or apathy, instead, your standing firm looks like humility. It looks like Respectful behavior, it looks like godliness. It means you're hospitable. It means you think like Jesus. And it means you stand firm and have brothers and sisters come alongside you and say, Brother, keep being humble. Keep seeking the Lord. Keep being godly. Oh, how we need this book to help us to stand firm to stand firm, finally, in God's grace. He says, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm. And when he says this is the true grace of God, he's referring to the entire book and how the entire book is anchored in the beauty of what God's grace is. He's referring to the gospel, the beautiful work of Jesus and its sweeping implications that, that underneath our identity and underneath our community of what it means to be the church and even underneath our endurance is this incredible reality of the hope that comes from the gospel. And this is where Peter began. After talking about... I Uh, exiles in chapter 1 and verse 1. He then says in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice this, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Every single one of those words is important. He has has caused us to be born again. That means that God's grace was so unbelievably transformative that God came and invaded your life and although you believed in Jesus, you need to know that wasn't by accident that God was at work underneath you. That God was the one who's ordaining all of those circumstances and then it says that you were born again, which means so fundamentally changed because of the beauty of what Jesus is and what he has done that everything about you has been eternally altered Look at chapter 2 and verse 10. His grace is expressed in terms of once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The model of endurance comes from the example of Jesus in chapter 2, verse 22. It says this, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When, When was that? That was when he was being crucified. Peter brings us right back to the moment of the cross and says when he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And Peter says in verse 21:4:2, this you have been called Christ, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So when someone reviles you, and you just think, duck, caught it and you grit your teeth and you're ready to fire back what holds you back from just going there and just saying what your heart wants to say you immediately take it back to the beauty of the gospel and you're reminded that God birthed you again so that you don't have to say what you want to say And what do you do with the pain? What do you do with the anger? What do you do with the frustration? You're reminded that those are all the kinds of things that Jesus died for, not only to save you from them that are in your heart, but also to deliver you from embracing them because at the end of the day, those things don't win. Jesus is the one who's victorious. And then chapter 4 and verse 1, he says this, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. What does he mean, arm yourself with the same way of thinking? It is that you look at the gospel, you see the way that Jesus lived, you see the message that he preached, the way, what he did for you, you see the beauty of his grace that's underneath your life, and you keep coming back to that message, you keep coming back to the gospel over and over and over and over, and you keep reminding yourself, God is holy, I'm not, Jesus saves, Christ is my life, and therefore, I, it doesn't matter what they think of me it matters what he thinks of me it doesn't matter what they say about me it matters what he says about me and therefore I don't have to get even because at the end of the day Jesus is the one who's going to settle the score and at the end of the day my inheritance isn't here anyway so they can take away my reputation they can take away my job they can take away all these things at the end of the day I'm good because my stuff's somewhere else but it's because of the gospel that one thinks this way, that exiles are exiles because of what Christ did for us. See, friend, the beauty of the gospel and the work of Jesus goes far beyond just how you get into the kingdom. To be in exile means that you're, you're in love with the beauty of God's grace. It means that you've been so fundamentally changed because of what Christ has done, that you see the world and you see suffering, you see your future through this gospel-shaped lens. And it means that there's nothing, that God's given you an appetite such as there's nothing that you love and long for more than the beauty of that grace. You've tasted and seen the goodness of Jesus. And so as the culture changes, as opposition sort of grows, and even if you are invited to suffer, The beauty is that God's grace eclipses all the loss connected to suffering. It means that his grace is so amazing, so compelling, that we are not just encouraged and exhorted, but we're helped to persevere all the way to the end. So what does this book call us to? Hmm. This book calls us to receive the grace of God. To take that grace all throughout these five chapters to celebrate it and then to anchor our lives in it, believing that God has an inexhaustible supply of grace and that he can help Christian exiles persevere all the way to the end. So why has God in his providence allowed you to be around the book of 1 Peter? Maybe today? maybe for the last 11 months? Could it be because he wants to help you understand not only who you are and what the world is like, but also because he wants to help you finish strong and to stand firm, to be part of an exiled community, a group of people who are trying to stand firm in God's grace. Father, we pray that you would make us the kind of people that understand the truths of this wonderful book and then we're able to live it out in where you've placed us in the world. We We need your grace, Lord, because we face trials of many kinds. Some within this room have huge health issues going on. Some experiencing great loss. It's like an amputation in their life has happened. Others, God, so fearful of what's coming next. Others with relationships that seem like they're on a really fragile edge because of the difference in terms of worldview. Thank you, Lord, that you, through Christ, will sustain us. And thank you that you even used this book to create a way of thinking about life that we wouldn't have had had it not been for 1 Peter. And then finally, Lord, thank you that at the end of the days, when the smoke of history clears, there's only one person standing, and that's you. And we thank, we're so grateful that you've told us that. And we're so thankful that someday, You're going to make everything right. Until that day, Lord, we're just going to believe and trust in your ability to give us grace to finish to the very end. So help us. In Jesus' name, amen.